0: Many of you may want to promote your organization, your business, a cause, or your favorite charity to our listeners. For this year, 2024, you can do that right here on this podcast. This podcast is now carried worldwide on 15 different streaming platforms. Hundreds, if not thousands, listen to each episode each month. For just $100, you can get a 60-second advertisement that will run all month. That's 30 days of advertising for just 100 100 bucks. For $200, you can get a 60 second advertisement that will run for two months. And for just $300, guess what? Yep, you got it. You get a 60 second advertisement that runs consecutively for three months. Friends, I'm very familiar with radio advertising costs. I know how much it costs, it's a lot. Let me say this clearly to you you will not find a better deal. Interested? Email me. Let's talk about how we can help you advertise. You can reach me at tjordan at 1795group.com. That's T-J-O-R-D-A-N at 1795group.com. Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you, thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode 17 of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. Happy New Year 2024, everyone. I hope that 2024 is filled with peace, joy, happiness, good health for you and for every member of your family. Let me tell you about a few things that are happening with the 1795 group. First, I'd like to officially welcome our youngest listener to the podcast family, He's even less than one month old, and I'm not sure that he listens yet, but he will. You see, he was born in the early morning hours of December 3rd, 2023, and he's almost one month old. His name, Hudson R. Rife, my youngest grandson. Welcome to this little blue planet, Hudson. When you get older, you'll listen to these episodes, and you will learn important things and say, hey... That's my grandpa. You're right, I'm your grandpa. Second, if you signed up on our website, attended any of our events, or applied to work with us as a student intern, then you'll receive our upcoming 2024 newsletter in early February. Shelby Harrison and Zoe Atkinson do a great job with this. Be on the lookout for that email. If you're not signed up and you'd like to receive the newsletter, and it is kind of interesting, it's very different, Please go to our website and sign up today. That's www.1795group.com. Third and last, the 1795 Group is sponsoring another virtual workshop to improve your knowledge and skills. I think if I did my math right, this one is number five. It will occur on, write this down. Go ahead, get a pen. Sunday night, February 18th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's Sunday night. February 18th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. This workshop will focus on the topic of program evaluation. That's something that the 1795 group is very good at, and we've done a lot of, to be quite honest. Let me say this to you. If you desire success for your programs, you'll want to participate in this workshop. Registration is only $10, and half of that will be donated to charity. Half of that, that's $5, will be donated to the greater Cleveland, Ohio Food Bank. You won't find a less expensive top quality workshop anywhere. Learn from the comfort and convenience of your home and register today on our website. You can find this event at 1795group.com on the events page. Okay, let's talk about our special guest today, Dr. Jamie DeWitt. She's been patiently waiting inside the soundproof studio and listen to me talk. I've been waving to her through the little window in my audio booth. Hey, Jamie, how are you? She's waving back and smiling. Jamie's always so positive. So who is Dr. Jamie DeWitt? Well, first of all, Dr. DeWitt is an expert in toxicology and human health. She has a PhD degree in environmental science and neuroscience from Indiana University at Bloomington, Indiana but she also has more than 20 years' experience leading innovative research in environmental toxicology and human health. After obtaining her doctorate, she went on and got postdoc training with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and with the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Recently, she is a professor in East Carolina at the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina University. There she led groundbreaking research funded by the Department of Defense, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, along with numerous state and philanthropic organizations. In October, she was appointed as the Director of Environmental Health Sciences Center, of the Environmental Health Sciences Center at Oregon State University. In case you're wondering, Oregon State is located in Corvallis, Oregon, about two and a half hours south of Portland. I had to look that one up myself. The center in Oregon State supports a wide range of activities. They focus on translational environmental health science research. The center fosters collaborative research with other centers of research excellence at Oregon State, including the Superfund Research Center, the Linus Pauling Institute, and the Center for Qualitative Health Sciences, as well as other academic units across the region. I hope that you benefit from this podcast. Well, hello, welcome to episode number 17. This is early January 2024. Actually, we're recording it on December 28th. 2023. And my special guest today is Jamie DeWitt, Dr. Jamie DeWitt. She's a professor of environmental and molecular toxicology at Oregon State University. And she's also the director of the Environmental Health Sciences Center there and in the College of Agricultural Sciences. So, Jamie, how are you? I'm doing
1: well. Thank you for having me here
0: today. How was your Christmas?
1: It was very nice. It was relaxing and not filled with any sort of family drama. So that was wonderful.
0: That's good. That's good. Our topic today is really interesting one. It's what's in our water may be killing us and it may be, so we'll find out. So like all past guests who are Professor Jamie, I always think it's important to tout our organization, our host employer, in your case would be Oregon State and to talk about toxicology as a major. So, if I was a student, I was thinking about going to college, why would I go to Oregon State and why would I choose toxicology as an academic major?
1: Well, I actually just recently moved to Oregon State from East Carolina University. So I moved all the way across the continent to join a department of environmental and molecular toxicology. This is a group of faculty who are dedicated to improving public and environmental health by understanding how chemicals move in the world and what they might do to our bodies once they get into us. So students who are really interested in environmental science, environmental health, or public health would probably find Oregon State a really good place to go. There's lots of really wonderful programs here that focus on environmental health. We have a school of public health as well. So this would be a a great place to get that type of education. Oregon State is the largest public institution in the state, and it's an agricultural college and is filled with world-class faculty doing amazing research. Students who are interested in toxicology wouldn't have the opportunity to explore that as an undergraduate major here because there isn't an undergraduate major in toxicology. But because toxicology blends together so many sciences, they can explore many different sciences as a major and then maybe consider toxicology for an advanced degree such as a master's or PhD.
0: Very good. Yeah, I know in most colleges and universities... Toxicology is not an undergraduate major, but I think you have a minor there in toxicology. I think I saw on your website—is that correct?
1: I am actually not sure. I I'm, am I'm not. pretty sure you quite.
0: do. I know you're new there. <laughs> you made a move across yeah. country from East North Eastern Carolina University, of North Carolina, near Wilmington, and I think it was in, in October you were appointed the director of the new center there. So congratulations on your promotion. And I hope you got Thank you. some commensurate pay raise and uh, that came with it. Um, in this podcast, we're talking about chemicals in our water that may be killing us. And specifically, uh, these forever chemicals, or what's called PFAS, polyfluorinated substances. I, I, I don't know. You're the expert. I call them poly... Floral alkyl substances. I, I know I didn't say that right. So you're the expert. You tell us, Doctor Tuit. What does PFAS stand for?
1: PFAS is an acronym for a class of fourteen thousand plus synthetic chemicals known as per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. People have probably heard of the brand name Teflon. Uh, People may have heard of a chemical known as PFOA or perfluorooctanoic acid. These are products and chemicals that belong to the class of PFAS. As I said, they're synthetic, and they're used in many different products and processes that uh, make industrial and consumer products. Did you say
0: 14,000 or 1,400? 1,400.
1: 14,000, so the United States Environmental Protection Agency has a computational toxicology dashboard, and they look through different chemical structures, and they have identified through these algorithms over 14,000 individual chemical structures that belong to this class of chemicals.
0: That's amazing, 14,000 chemicals. So uh, we hear about PFAS in the news recently a lot. Um, I just, like, if you're just a common man, common woman, you're probably just hearing about this in the national news. So why are these things in the news now and not 20 years ago?
1: That's a challenging question to answer because I've been working with PFAS since about 2005. So I've been aware of them for almost two decades now. I think there's growing awareness of PFAS in the environment and then PFAS in our food and our drinking water and our products because of hard work of many different scientists and organizations. But also just this year, the United States Environmental Protection Agency recommended maximum contaminant levels. These would be levels allowable in public drinking water for six different PFAS. There's also been a movie made about PFAS starring Mark Ruffalo. There have also been quite a few public uh, uh, advocacy organizations that have been speaking out about PFAS and working to get them reduced, eliminated, and regulated.
0: So as I think of it, maybe it's the media exposure, the movie. I, I I'm not I haven't seen the movie, but I'm guessing it came out in the last five years, right?
1: Yes, it's and not, I, I don't have any royalties associated <laughs> with it. It's it's called Dark Waters, and it it features uh, uh, work by an attorney named Rob Ballot to sue one of the manufacturers on behalf of citizens in part of southern Ohio and northern West Virginia.
0: Yeah, I'm going to watch that now that you mention the title of it. So I think it's the media exposure that has caused this increasing awareness. So you mentioned before that these forever chemicals, these PFAS have been used in a lot of things. What type of things would we find them in?
1: Sure. I mentioned Teflon. That's a brand name. Uh, It's a nonstick coating that's made by a company known as ChemWars. It's a spinoff from another company known as DuPont. There are PFAS in many different water oil and stain repellent coatings. So there are some textiles that have PFAS on them to prevent stains from forming if there's a spill. But PFAS are also used in things like dental floss to make it move through your teeth easily. They're used in uh, climbing ropes, in some sorts of oils for bicycle chains. They're used in firefighting foam that firefighters use. They're used in turnout gear. They're used in medical devices and protective gear for medical health professionals. They're used in some paints, and they're used as surfactants to make floral polymers, which are types of plastics. There are well over 60 different product use categories for PFAS, uh, one of the major manufacturers, the 3M company, recently announced that they were going to be phasing out all of their PFAS production. And they released a list of items that contained a detectable amount of PFAS. And I think there are over 15,000 items on their oh list that they made available to the public.
0: Yeah, I, I, I know in my research for this, I read about Pfas, even being in implantable things that we put in our bodies, like medical implants, Um, it's just—is it safe to say that we're kind of swimming in these chemicals, or all around us, or ubiquitous?
1: That that is fair to frame how persistent Pfas are in the environment. Some of my colleagues published a paper last year that indicated rainwater contains detectable levels of PFAS, and some of these levels would exceed what, for example, the US EPA recommends as acceptable in drinking water.
0: Mm. So it's safe to say we're swimming in these. They're ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They're called forever chemicals. Why are they called forever chemicals?
1: PFAS, are part of a larger group of chemicals known as persistent organic pollutants, polychlorinated biphenyls, dioxins, flame retardants, are part of this group of chemicals that we call POPs. When I was in graduate school, I studied PCBs and dioxins, and they take 15 to 30 years to break down in the environment Mm -hmm. through natural processes, such as microbes or sunlight or heat. We think that PFAS may take Hundreds of years to naturally degrade in the environment and that's because the bond between carbon and fluorine is among the strongest bonds in chemistry. So it's really hard for microbes to get in and break that bond. When they're in our bodies, our enzymes also can't break most PFAS down. So once they're in our bodies, they stay in our bodies as the form that we were exposed to until they're excreted. And it takes a while for them to get excreted from our bodies as well.
0: Let's talk about your research and what you found with PFAS. I know that you're interested in the endocrine systems of, of babies, of youth, and so forth. What have you found about exposure to PFAS, Dr. DeWitt?
1: Most of the work in my lab these days has been focusing on their immune system effects. And I study what's really similar to a vaccine response. I use experimental models, and I ask if PFAS exposure affects the uh, ability to make antibodies against antigens, which is something that you would receive if you receive a vaccination. And and what we find is that many of the PFAS we look at reduce the body's ability to make antibodies. So that means that they're suppressing the ability of the immune system to do what it's supposed to do. We've also found that there can be effects on part of the cell cell. Uh, that makes energy. This is known as the mitochondria. We see that PFAS exposure changes how the mitochondria use energy. And we think that's one of the reasons that antibodies can't be made. The cells that make them just don't have enough energy to do so. We also see changes in, in the livers. So we look at livers just as a, a secondary effect. And we see changes in livers in terms of their size and how many cells they have and how uh, how many uh, types of enzymes that are in the liver that are associated with some of the molecular functions that PFAS can affect.
0: So it sounds like you probably do mostly bench research. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. I, I work in a laboratory. I occasionally work with scientists who ask questions about people who are willing to participate in, in their studies. These are known as epidemiologists. Um, but most of my work is with experimental models such as cells in the laboratory.
0: As a professor of public health, I'm sensing a number of research areas where we could ask people questions about their exposure and intake of PFAS, but that's for another day. If you're just tuning in, I'm talking to Dr. Jamie DeWitt. She's a professor of environmental and molecular toxicology at Oregon State University, and she's also the recently appointed director of the Environmental Health Sciences Center there. I think uh, this happened recently in October, 2023. She's heavily involved in research, as you heard, that involves relationships between biological organisms, their responses to environmental contaminants. And she's very interested in how early life exposure to a variety of agents may impact immune systems and endocrine systems resulted in may result in altered development or maybe diseases in later life. So let me ask you this, Jamie, I live in the western basin of Lake Erie. Lake Erie is one of our Great Lakes. Lake Erie is where we get our drinking water. Um, should I put a tap, some kind of something on my tap or something to reduce my level of exposure? Is, is PFAS in, in, great, in Lake Erie, in the Great Lakes? Um, how should each of us reduce this exposure level?
1: To the best of my understanding, there are PFAS present in Lake Erie, and I believe in the other Great Lakes. PFAS have been detected almost everywhere scientists have looked. I also believe that PFAS have been detected in fish that have been collected from Lake Erie in relatively high concentrations in fish that, that many people enjoy eating. I grew up in Michigan. I grew up eating Great Lakes fish or or inland lake fish. Uh, I probably have all sorts of contaminants in my body from growing up eating freshwater fish that are contaminated with mercury and dioxins and PCBs and now likely PFAS. However, if you're getting your water from a public utility that is of a certain size, Very likely, they are doing everything possible to reduce or eliminate PFAS in your drinking water. If you're on a private well, then your drinking water safety is your responsibility, unfortunately. Uh, And there are different filters that have been tested for their ability to reduce PFAS. Uh, the, The filters that seem to work the best are reverse osmosis, But even pitcher filters can work to some degree. They're not as good as reverse osmosis, and you have to be very diligent about changing the filters. But that's really up to you, and that means that you need to find out and verify where your water comes from and what your utility is doing if you have a utility delivering your water to you.
0: Yeah, I'm on city water here. Uh, My wife's parents were on well water where they lived out by the lake. I don't know if they ever tested it, but speaking of my wife's parents, my my father-in-law has been dead for a long time, but he was an avid fisherman in Lake Erie. He, he had a boat. He was always out on the boat. He was always catching perch and what we called walleye, which I think may be a form of pickerel. Um, and we always had fish fries at my mother-in-law's. Probably once a month I ate it, and she was really a fish an expert in cooking fish. It was really delicious. So are you saying that maybe fresh fish shouldn't be in my diet?
1: Well, I think, and like you, I also grew up going to fish fries at my uncle's lake. Almost every weekend we would have a fish fry and we would have uh, not walleye, but perch and bluegill and sunfish. Uh, I think some states have fish consumption advisories for PFAS. Michigan is a state that has some consumption advisories. North Carolina recently came out with a consumption advisory for PFOS or perfluoroctane sulfonic acid, which is a single PFAS. Uh, I don't know if Ohio has a fish consumption advisory for PFAS. Almost every state has a consumption advisory for mercury uh, or and dioxins and PCBs. Most of the consumption advisories don't say, do not eat fish ever. Most of them say, limit your fish consumption uh, of certain types of fish that tend to accumulate these chemicals more so than others. And there may be groups of people where the recommendations are a little more stringent, such as women of childbearing age, uh, pregnant people, and children. So, consumption advisories don't recommend never eating fish. They just recommend reducing consumption of certain types of fish because we all know that fish consumption is part of a healthy diet.
0: Is it better in your opinion to go with like a saltwater fish than a freshwater fish?
1: Well, part of it depends on what you're able to obtain and what you're able to afford. There are some saltwater fish that also have contaminants in them depending on where they eat on the food chain. One of my favorite types of sushi is mackerel. Mackerel are a predator, so they're contaminated with mercury. I try to limit my consumption of mackerel when I eat sushi. I think incorporating both fresh and saltwater fish is is part of a healthy diet. Just make sure you're aware of consumption advisories, and if you can, avoid those fish that are most likely to be highly contaminated contaminated, and limit your consumption to what's recommended. Look at your state consumption advisories, and then many uh, aquaria have fish consumption information that help you to make choices about what fish are low in contaminants.
0: I think you mentioned mackerel being a predator fish. I think that would also be true of tuna, tuna fish. uh, They may eat smaller fish and that mercury or the bad stuff, the chemicals build up in their tissues. So I think probably limiting um, what we eat maybe once per month. Would that be a good guideline? Maybe once a month?
1: I, I think for certain types of fish, but I would certainly encourage your listeners to to see what they can find out about the fish that they like the most. Uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium, for example, has really good information on what fish to consume for health and what fish to avoid because of contaminants or because they might have uh, fishing procedures that are not really environmentally sustainable.
0: Very good. Well, in preparation for our interview, I was doing some research, as I always do, and I I read a study that said eating just one serving of freshwater fish per year, that's just one per year, would have the same effect as drinking water that's heavily polluted with these forever chemicals for an entire month. And this equivalent month-long amount of water would be contaminated at levels that were 2,400 times greater than what's recommended by our Environmental Protection Agency, that's the EPA. So would you like to comment on that study, Dr. DeWitt?
1: So this was a study done by some great colleagues of mine at the Environmental Working Group. They put a lot of effort into coming up with this comparison between what's in some of the fish that they measured and what's in drinking water and they did look at some highly contaminated fish and they made this equivalent sort of factor to water that is highly contaminated and so this would be specifically for people who live in an area where there's a source of PFAS pollution into drinking water and into surface water where fish can be contaminated. Uh, The current health advisory for certain PFAS in drinking water uh, by the US EPA is quite low, but the maximum contaminant levels being proposed are a little bit higher than the current health advisory. And without going into too much detail, maximum contaminant levels also have to consider economic and technological feasibility, not just the health effects. So we, we can't just say utility You can't allow any PFAS in drinking water if they don't have the technology or the ability to implement technology to remove PFAS. So I think that that this paper was sort of a worst-case scenario, but it does highlight that many people are likely receiving PFAS exposure through the food that they eat and in combination with the water that they drink, and we need to do something to reduce those exposures.
0: Yeah, and it's my understanding that exposure to these negative chemicals may not affect me immediately, but they're likely to affect me as I get older. Is that correct?
1: So when we talk about the toxicity of PFAS, many people say they're not acutely toxic. In other words, if you were to ingest contaminated fish, you wouldn't have an immediate reaction such as what you might get if you're allergic to bee stings or have a reaction to poison ivy or spill some acid on your skin and and get a burn. They're chronic toxicants. In other words, the exposure increases the risk of chronic diseases, and there are many different health effects that have been linked to PFAS exposure, and these health effects are what we would classify as chronic diseases.
0: Would that include cancer? Would cancer be considered a chronic illness?
1: That, that's correct. There are two types of cancers that have been linked to PFAS exposure, testicular cancer and kidney cancer. And recently, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is an entity under the World Health Organization, reclassified PFOA as a known human carcinogen based on its linkage to testicular cancer. Mm. And I think kidney cancer, I I may be incorrect. I I haven't reread the document that they released recently. Um, but at least one of those two types of cancers was behind their decision to reclassify PFOA as a group one carcinogen.
0: Yeah. So uh, in my research, I also see the names of 3M and DuPont a lot, these and related manufacturers. Um, I see them listed often. So why is that? Do you think that I see DuPont and 3M listed a lot in these research studies?
1: So DuPont and 3M were two of the major manufacturers of PFAS here in the United States. I think there are at least 10 different companies within the United States that manufactured PFAS, but there are many other companies that purchased PFAS from the manufacturers and used them in other products and processes. But to the best of my knowledge, 3M and DuPont were some of the major manufacturers here in the United States.
0: And from what I've read, it it looks like 3M and DuPont are being sued a lot um, by cities, states, um, just by everybody. So in my own state, in Ohio, just one month ago, in November 23rd, a U.S. appeals court out of Cincinnati handed DuPont and similar manufacturers of these toxic so-called forever chemicals a big win, and they they said the lower court, didn't apply. that The the ruling of the lower court was vacated by this U.S. District 6th district court in Cincinnati, Ohio. So do you agree or disagree with the verdict, Dr. DeWitt?
1: So my spouse is an attorney, so maybe I can get some of his attorney knowledge in my <laughs> head. So I'm, I'm not a legal expert. I, I do uh, serve as a plaintiff's expert witness in PFAS cases and some of those cases uh, have included DuPont and 3M. In fact, the first case in which I was a plaintiff's expert witness was uh, the case of the State of Minnesota against the 3M Company, uh, which was settled, so I didn't have to testify in court. I I don't really have an opinion one way or another without. Reading through the ruling in more detail, I understand that it's a class action lawsuit, and I think that there are specific requirements for a class action lawsuit to get approved, and, and I don't know what the basis of the sixth, court, uh, sixth district court's decision was or sixth circuit court, whichever it was, decision was, but likely it will be appealed and, and other attempts will move forward. Uh, And I understand there's been a number of lawsuits. Uh, Some say that's one of the reasons that 3M has decided to get out of the PFAS game.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Um, So let me ask you this. Uh, One article I read said that PFAS were actually discovered in the 1930s. I think it was by a German researcher. And they were kept, in the United States, they were kept hidden from the Environmental Protection Agency into the late 1990s. So these forever chemicals were unregulated in to the until the early 2000s is that correct?
1: It is correct that PFAS were I think discovered in the 30s or 40s and have been used since then in many different products and processes. I don't know if there was any intent on the part of the companies that manufactured these to keep their the their use of PFAS a secret from the US EPA. I do think that the system of chemicals management from a regulatory perspective is pretty complex here in the United States. And if a chemical isn't a pesticide or an agent used in cosmetics or food or personal care products, that the EPA might be somewhat limited in how it can regulate those chemicals there is something known as the toxic substances control act but i think that applies to chemicals that are manufactured in certain quantities environmental law is very complex and i am by no means an expert in environmental law but I, but i don't know if there was intent or if it was just interpretation of the laws at the time that Kept certain information from the agency that may have enabled them to make decisions earlier.
0: So do you think we have a public health emergency on our hands or not?
1: I think, I think that we have a very deep public health set of concerns associated with PFAS because of their prevalence in the environment and because of their links to chronic diseases that we have i don't know i don't know if it would be classified as an emergency cuz i don't really know how we would define emergency from a public health perspective but many many people are exposed chronic diseases are the world's leading cause of premature death pfas are undoubtedly part of the mixture of chemicals to which we're exposed and are likely part of that mixture leading to chronic diseases. So from that perspective, we could say that it is an emergency, and managing PFAS does require urgent action to reduce or eliminate our ongoing exposures and to reduce or eliminate exposures to future generations.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think we, I don't know if it's an emergency or not, but I know that something has to be done because uh, the, the public is just now awakening to this PFAS issue. Um, I read another paper that said that they think DuPont and 3M are getting off too cheaply, too inexpensively with these class action lawsuits. I think the total now around is around 11 or $12 billion that they have been guilty of, uh, they've been charged with. But many states, towns, water districts, they say, Yeah, that's fine, but that doesn't really help us because it's going to cost like $4 million to replace our infrastructure or water or tests for PFAS. So what's your view on this? And if you can comment, Dr. DeWitt, on do you think that maybe these class action lawsuits are not the way to go?
1: I don't know the answer to that. I think that there are some communities that are frustrated that, Regulatory action at the state or federal level hasn't come as quickly as they'd like. And so working through the legal system is one option that communities have to get some sort of compensation or to result in action in their communities. For example, some water districts may not want to pass the buck on to their consumers and want the polluters to pay for, for cleanup or infrastructure improvements so that they have the technology available to filter out PFAS from water systems. So I think there's frustration and also a sense of urgency in contaminated communities that, that are experiencing public health emergencies because of PFAS levels in their drinking water. So I think the legal system is one option that communities have. I don't know if it's the best option, but it is an option that may result in action that doesn't occur at the state or federal level in a timely manner.
0: Yeah, I go back to the Ohio decision by the district court in in Cincinnati that essentially said 11.8 million Americans, Ohioans, can't do anything about PFAS. Uh, our hands are, our hands have been tied by this court decision. So I don't know why they decided to go against what the lower court said. I'd have to read it myself. But I think we should do things to limit our own personal risk. And let's go there right now. And I think that, you know, this, this podcast is called Grassroots Health for a Reason. And that's my own, my own belief that things that come up from the bottom that swell up from the bottom, that come from the people are the most effective. So let's talk about individual and family exposure. What are some things that we can do on a personal level to reduce our family's exposure?
1: Unfortunately, putting the the impetus on the individual does require that individuals and families take responsibility for controlling exposure to agents that they never really asked to get exposed to. So it can be kind of frustrating to know that I have to figure out what PFAS uh, are in the very, what products contain PFAS, for example, whether or not I have PFAS in my public water. So individuals have to do a little bit of education to figure out where their water comes from and whether there are PFAS in it and then whether they need to put in a filter, or can afford to put in a filter. So there are filtration systems that people can choose. There's whole home reverse osmosis, there's under the sink reverse osmosis, and then there are the pitcher, pitcher, pitcher filters that I mentioned. There are also some additional filtration devices that people can put onto their point of use or their faucets uh, if they want to do that. People can also decide to support companies that have pledged to go PFAS free. The Green Science Policy Institute has a PFAS central website that helps consumers and scientists uh, look up PFAS related information and you can get information from them on companies that that are PFAS free in terms of their products. People can also make decisions about who they vote for. They can vote for candidates who pledged to make environmental quality a big part of their agendas uh, that can happen at the local, the state, and the federal level. And people can also spend their money uh, with companies or purchase products from companies that have gone PFAS-free. So that sends a message to, to those who make products that consumers don't want PFAS in their products. But it requires a lot of work at the individual level to get that information.
0: Yeah, in some ways it's not fair, as you said. It's like blaming the victim almost because they're downstream from, like I teach in my classes, there's upstream and downstream factors. And these are downstream blaming the victim kind of things that you have to get a filter because of what's put in your water upstream by a factory. Um, So let's talk about population level initiatives and advocacy. What can we do to advocate? What can we do from population-based initiatives along those lines?
1: One thing that I've learned is that our senators and representatives like to hear from us. So you can write, you can call, you can email your senators and representatives, either at the federal level or the state level. And that can happen from you as an individual, or you can write a letter with an organization to say, hey, we want there to be action taken on reducing PFAS or eliminating PFAS. Uh, And that works because senators and representatives are there for us and they hopefully make decisions that their constituents want them to make. But there are also different organizations that are working very hard to Reduce or eliminate PFAS. I, you mentioned the Environmental Working Group. I mentioned Green Science Policy. There are countless organizations at local levels and state levels that are that are doing good work to get information out about PFAS to ensure that PFAS are reduced in communities. So families and individuals can get involved in these different organizations uh, in terms of advocacy work. Or monetary donations, many of these organizations are not-for-profit and rely on donations from individuals to help them move forward. I am not on the board of any of these different organizations, so I I have no stake in their monetary success or not.
0: So uh, recently we put some carpet, new carpet, down in our family room, and the guy asked me if I wanted stain-resistant carpet and I know you can do stain resistant couches and sofas and love seats and chairs. And should we should we should should we say no? Should we reject those offers? Is is that a source of PFAS in the home?
1: Stain repellent coatings can be a source of PFAS. There are some of those coatings that are made out of PFAS, but there are also techniques that uh, textile manufacturers can use to in to put stain resistance into textiles without the use of PFAS, so you can research what companies have those. If you chose to go with the stain resistant uh, carpeting that has PFAS in it, that can be a source of exposure for you and your home. But more importantly, where the PFAS were produced and where the PFAS were applied to the carpeting or textile, will be a source of exposure for somebody else. So these facilities are sources of PFAS into the environment, and people who live near those facilities will experience a bigger chunk of exposure mm. from that PFAS use than, than you would in your home. So if you want to think about things on the population level, your individual decisions can impact others, and that's something to think about.
0: Yeah, I would agree. So, our special thanks today to Dr. Jamie DeWitt from Oregon State University for being on our show. Uh, I always give my guests the last word. Jamie, any last words of wisdom to these fine listeners?
1: So, I, I think many times when people hear about contaminants in the environment and the health effects that they can possibly experience because of their exposure, People get scared and anxious and worried, but I I want people to realize that they can empower themselves to make changes to reduce their exposure and improve their health. There's a some clinical guidance available for healthcare providers. So, if you're somebody who lives in an area where there is high PFAS exposure and you're worried about your health, you can go to your healthcare provider. There's The clinical guidance is from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and it has some recommendations about what healthcare providers can do for people living in PFAS-impacted communities to help them to understand if they're at uh, increased risk for developing certain types of linked diseases. So people can be empowered to make decisions to reduce their exposure and prevent uh, certain health effects by getting ahead of them with their health care providers.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. DeWitt, for being on the show today. Don't forget, next month in February, the first Monday of each month, I think it's the 5th of February, we'll be back with another new episode of Grassroots Health. Don't forget what the 14th Dalai Lama always said. He always said, be kind whenever possible. And it's always possible. We'll see you next month. I know a master clinical teacher when I hear one. Dr. Roger Seahelt of MedCram is a master clinical teacher. He's quadruple board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary medicine, critical care, and sleep medicine. He's also an associate professor of medicine and co-founder of MedCram with Kyle Aldred, a physician assistant. How would I describe MedCram? Hmm. Well, I guess I'd describe it this way. It's a perfect place to learn. Their YouTube channel includes more than 100 free medical videos, and they've also created helpful courses in a variety of topics at a very reasonable price. Subscribe and start learning today like I do. Become a better student, better healthcare provider, score better on exams, cut down on study time, or obtain continuing education credits. You can find them at MedCram.com.